Welcome to Simple Obedience with Mandy Kennan, where my prayer is that you will feel like we are sitting one-on-one at a coffee shop, my chair pulled close as I obey God's command on my life to use my voice to encourage and declare His promises over you. Join me for testimony and encouragement relating to motherhood, marriage, birth and postpartum, finances, health, foster care, business, friendship, and sobriety, all in light of the gospel. God's ways truly are best. I know because I've rebelled and seen the destruction that comes from it, and I've seen God's ultimate protection, goodness, and true freedom that comes from obeying His instruction. My hope is to spur you on, encourage you, lift your head, educate and empower you, as well as create a space for other women to share their testimonies and their birth stories. There is hope to be found in Jesus. Okay, hello. Welcome back to Simple Obedience. I'm so excited to be recording today. And man, I experienced a ton of just pushback trying to click record today. Um, but we are here and I'm excited to be sharing with you guys. I want to do a three part birth series with all three of my pregnancies. So I'm going to start with Judah's and, um, for birth stories, I love to listen to the ones that include like deciding to have a baby or if it was a surprise and kind of like the whole preconception, conception, pregnancy, birth. So I'm going to go through all of that with all three of my babies. So to start, Judah's birth was beautiful minus a couple things I wish I could change now um, that I know better. But as a first time mom, I did the best that I knew. So um, when I first got married, I was ready to have a baby like immediately and my husband was not. So we decided to wait and I was on the Morena IUD, which if I could go back and educate myself on birth control, (laughs) I would definitely do that. Um, I'll have a whole nother episode all about birth control. I'm going to do a Um, an episode on how my worldview changed and that changed my beliefs and, um, yeah, just my opinion on abortion and, um, what the Bible has to say about life in the womb and just so many good nuggets of truth. And honestly, just information that is not shared enough about, um, abortion. And I actually have some ideas about interviewing some people who have had abortions because I think it's important to hear from the women who have gone through it themselves because the media will portray it as, you know, just take this pill or come in and get this procedure. But women who have gone through it have a different story to tell. I've found just from speaking to them. So I want to give them, um, that place to kind of share their story. Um, so that's all to come, but, back to Judah. Um, I was on birth control. I had the Marina IUD for about seven years. I took it out in January, um, and I got it replaced. And so I had my second Marina IUD, um, from January until August, I think, and, or end of July, August ish of the year that Judah was conceived. And I did not even get my period. I just got pregnant. So I know that that's not everyone's story, but I'm so thankful that I wasn't, um, struggling to conceive with him because I was so ready. (laughs) Like the second they took out my birth control, I was just like, all right, let's go. Um, 
But the reason that Caleb decided to kind of consent to (laughs) the birth control coming out is because my midwife had told him it could take up to nine months for us to conceive a baby, nine to 12 months. Um, And so he's like, okay, that sounds good. Like we have some time. And then it was like three weeks later that we had our next appointment that I was pregnant. So um, it was very, very quick. I honestly can't even believe it. It was incredibly, it was a huge blessing for sure. Um, So after taking out my birth control, I had just lost 65 pounds um, from working out and eating healthier and just taking better care of myself and really limiting my added sugar. I was drinking a ton of water. I had been alcohol free for one year when I took out my birth control. So I was like the healthiest that I could be for this baby. And that was really important to me. Um, I'm so thankful that I started to prioritize my health before I had children because it really does affect your entire household and the way that you raise your children and the things that you expose them to and the things you bring in your house. So, um, I had just lost all that weight and I was kind of feeling bloated. Like we decided that we were going to, um, take some pictures we were also at the same time starting our foster care journey. So, um, we actually got, uh, this is kind of confusing and hard to explain quickly. March of 2020, we started our foster care process of sending in our application the same month, the whole world shut down. Uh, we took classes throughout 2020, Thankfully, we were able to have them in person, and the instructor was pretty laid back on the mask thing. Some people still wore masks the entire time. Some people did it virtually, Um, but we did meet in person, and I was thankful for that. And we finished our licensing journey um, around the end of 2020, so in the fall, and that was also when I found out that I was pregnant. So we posted on Facebook these pictures announcing we're fostering. We posted our Amazon wish list, um, like our foster care, like basically um, like a baby registry. <laughs> for fostering. And it was two days after we posted that, that we came home to all these packages on our doorstep. And it was so much baby stuff. It was a diaper bag. It was like baby spoons. It was baby clothes. It was diaper rash cream. It was like all of this stuff. And I was also babysitting at the time for my friend's son. And, um, he was an infant, probably two or three months old. And I just felt kind of like I wanted to take a test right after we opened up all these gifts. And the only symptom that I remember having is just feeling kind of bloated. And I peed on the stick and then I brought it into the living room. I set it down on the table next to me and I fed the baby his bottle right after opening up all these gifts. The gifts are still all over the floor. I finished feeding the baby his bottle. I look over at the test and I see two pink lines and I'm like, oh my gosh. And Caleb was home with me. He's like, oh crap. Like that was literally his response. And the next thing he said was go take another test. So I took a digital one. It said pregnant and Caleb was in shock. He like looks terrified in our pictures we took. He does not look excited. I am like the happiest I've ever been. He is like the most scared he's ever been. And he wanted to have children, but 
there were just so many variables in our life and we thought that we were going to be stepping into the foster care realm. Meanwhile, like we were one of three couples that got pregnant in the foster care classes. And that's something that's pretty common. (laughs) Like you think you have an idea of what your life is going to look like. And so you start pursuing this. And then at the same time, it's like, oh, here's a biological child in the midst of all of that. Um, which we were very prayerful of, should we foster or should we do biological children first? And we thought that we made a decision and then God was like, you're not in charge of that. So here we are, pregnant, newly foster parents. And um, yeah, it was just crazy. So a couple weeks after that, I had some early bleeding and I thought I was about eight weeks along based on when I thought that I conceived, but I hadn't had a pregnancy test yet, or sorry, an ultrasound yet. So we went into the ER. Um, it was pretty light, like light red at first, kind of pinkish, and then it turned dark red and I was feeling crampy and it was just terrifying. So we went into the ER at night. We had to wait for the ultrasound tech to get there. They wheeled me back and I was just bawling because I'm like, okay, I've, I've heard enough stories. I think this is a miscarriage. Like I was educated enough to know that that could be what was going on. Um, but sure enough, I was six weeks and one day pregnant and I saw Judah's heartbeat and on a lot of the pro-life, um, content that they create, it says that, um, heartbeat as early as six weeks. And I did see Judah's heartbeat at six weeks one day. And it was incredible. This tiny little baby beating heart in my body, (laughs) just so cool. And, um, they had told me I had a subchorionic hemorrhage or a hematoma, which basically means a little bit of blood in between the amniotic sac in my uterine wall. And um, later I found out that this could be caused by low progesterone, which I definitely have that. Um, I found out after I miscarried and I did end up supplementing progesterone in Gloria's pregnancy. So I'll talk more about that. But... Yes. They told me it was a threatened miscarriage. They told me to come back in a couple of weeks and basically see if my baby's alive or not. So they said he, well, they didn't know it was a boy. They said the baby could be fine. The baby could, this could be the beginning of a miscarriage. So we'll do another ultrasound in a couple of weeks, try and rest, try not to stress. And they sent me home. So that was horribly hard, but at eight weeks and five days, I had another ultrasound. He was perfectly fine, growing steady, and I was so excited. So I shared our pregnancy, I think around nine or 10 weeks, and I was just so thrilled that I was pregnant and my baby was okay. So I could not wait to find out his gender, so we opted for the genetic testing to find out early via blood test if my baby had any genetic abnormalities, but more importantly, I didn't care about that. I just wanted to know his gender. The test came back inconclusive, so we did it again, came back inconclusive again, and the doctor recommended that we go see a pediatric specialist in Des Moines to get a detailed ultrasound. (sighs) This is probably the main reason why I chose to do a home birth. (laughs) this part of my story. Um, and then also what happened at birth, but this, this part was horrible. Um, when I, when this is why I chose to do a home birth with Gloria is what I'm saying. This whole, this whole experience was completely unnecessary. 
so filled with fear and just like threatening me and making me feel like my baby was going to die if I didn't intervene or do something. And I just didn't know that I could say no to this. So when they recommended it, Caleb and I talked about it. He wanted to go and make sure everything was okay more than I did. I was kind of hesitant, but he's like, babe, if they think we should go, let's just go. And I'm like, okay. So I... I wasn't forced to, but I was more like, do you really think we need to do this? Like, I just, I had a, I had a feeling that it wasn't going to be a good thing. So we, um, tried to make the appointment, but then Caleb got COVID and my grandpa was also hospitalized at the time with COVID and it was pretty serious. And, um, so we had to put this off like another two weeks until it's been however many days that the CDC recommended before you go into public to a doctor's office when you've been exposed to COVID-19 and it was just so annoying. So we ended up finally getting in just before Thanksgiving. And, um, I think I was around 11 weeks pregnant at this point. And all I wanted to know was if I was having a boy or a girl and they were the ones telling me, we need to make sure that this isn't a situation where it's either you or the baby. That's literally the words that they used. Um, So I get there, the ultrasound tech does a detailed ultrasound, takes a while. And then she said, she's going to bring the doctor in. And I asked the ultrasound tech, is there anything you can tell me? And she's like, I can't tell you any results. You'll need to wait for the doctor. So the doctor comes in and she tells me there is nothing wrong basically. But the only thing that she saw was that my placenta was a little bit bigger than what she'd like to see. It's about twice as large as it should be. And so she recommended that we move forward with an amniocentesis, which if you don't know what an amniocentesis is, I can quickly fill you in. I could talk about this for so long. (laughs) Like this part in particular, I could talk about forever. And I don't want this to be that long of a podcast (laughs) because I could make it long. I've already recorded this once and it was an hour and a half long. Just of Judah's story. And I have three of these, so I need to get them out into the world. Um, But anamniocentesis is when they take a very large needle and they poke you in your belly through your um, stomach into your amniotic fluid. And they take out your amniotic fluid and they test it. And this is the only way to get a for sure answer of if your baby has anything wrong with it. So any abnormalities, any, um, like trisomy 18, trisomy 23 down syndrome. I think there's like another one too, that they were thinking might've been a, uh, something, but Basically, when you take the blood test, it comes back as like a percentage maybe, or when you take the, um, sorry, when you take the ultrasound, you could see maybe there's a marker that could be indicative of, um, down syndrome, or maybe they have a, um, I don't know, like an enlarged this. So if it doesn't go down, then that might mean that there's a percentage, but with the amniocentesis, it tells you 100% if your baby is healthy or if there's something wrong. And they recommended I do that. I did not want to do the amnio. I was terrified. I had told them that going into it, that I didn't want to do it. And I asked, if I don't do it, what are the risks? And I didn't know any of the questions to ask, but I'm so thankful I asked this because that's a very good question. If your provider ever tries to get you to take a test or to do blood work or to look into something, 
always ask, if I don't do anything, what will come of that? What are the risks if I do nothing? Um, And there's a good acronym called BRAIN, and it's to know what questions to ask your provider. And it's for basically like five questions you should be asking. And the acronym is BRAIN. Um, Hang on, I'm trying to find the... Oh, man, I'm going to have to edit this out. Oh, here they are. Okay. What are the benefits of having this procedure intervention? What are the risks of this process for me, my baby, and how it will affect my labor and birth? What are the alternatives to this procedure? Can it be carried out differently or can a a different process be used instinct. What do you feel is right for you? What is the safest and what is your gut instinct? And N, what happens if I do nothing? I'm not ready to decide yet. I don't want to do anything right now or I need more time. So the five letters for brain are benefits, risks, alternatives, instinct, and nothing. And I knew well enough in my gut that I did not feel good about this. So instinct was telling me not to. I asked the question of if I do nothing, their answer to if I did nothing was, well, it could lead to a situation where it's either you or the baby. And obviously as a first time mom, I'm thinking in my mind, like I would never choose to abort my baby. So even if there's something wrong, I'm not going to choose to end the life of my child. Even if they were to die like in utero or at birth, That's something where I don't feel like I would ever want to make that decision myself and I would allow their life to go on as long as they possibly could. So I knew that abortion was not something I was going to be doing. And I also knew that I just really, there was no reason for me to do an amnio to increase the risk of miscarriage by having them put this needle in my belly. It's increasing the risk of my water breaking prematurely. Like I had already read up on this because I knew that that could be something that they're going to recommend. And she told me you can either wait until your 20 week ultrasound or you can do it now, but I recommend doing it now because we could be having a situation where it's either you or the baby. And I'm a first time mom. I want to keep myself safe. I want to keep my baby safe. Even though I wouldn't do an abortion, that's something where I'm now putting my husband in a situation where he could lose me and then have this infant when he's already terrified that I'm pregnant. Like just saying that phrase to a first time mom when the only thing wrong, quote unquote wrong in my ultrasound is that my placenta is large is just wrong. Like she should not have said that to me. And it was just ridiculous. So I ended up consenting through what I feel was major medical bullying for the amniocentesis. And she had horrible bedside manner. She told me she was going to walk me through every single part of it. And basically I laid back in the bed. I was already crying. And I'm sorry if you're pregnant right now listening to this, because I can't imagine hearing this story while being pregnant, even though I walked through it while being pregnant. But she said, okay, you're going to feel a pop. And she put the needle into my belly. 
And when she did that, I did feel a pop. But then I felt another pop because she didn't tell me I was going to feel another one when it goes into my amniotic sac. Meanwhile, the ultrasound tech has the ultrasound on my belly and you can see my baby kicking away, moving all over the place. And then there's this huge needle right next to it in my stomach. And I can see the needle and I can see my baby both on the ultrasound. She, when she went into my amniotic sac, she didn't tell me it was going to be another pop. So it scared me because I'm looking at my baby on the ultrasound and I'm like, what just happened? And so I jumped and she pulls the needle completely out of my belly. Doesn't even get what she needs to get. And she looked at me and she said, I know that you're scared, but you need to calm down. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If I could go back, I would have ran out of that office Potentially, I would have wanted to punch her, but like you should not be a medical provider if you don't have empathy enough to feel like sad for a first time mom who you just coerced into having this huge needle right next to her baby. But she doesn't feel any of that because this is her everyday job to make as much money as possible by doing as many procedures and tests as she possibly can. And a lot of women who go there might actually have something wrong with their baby. And so this test might be more helpful if there might've been something wrong. But looking back at the fact that the only thing that she saw on my ultrasound was an enlarged placenta and she made me feel like this was needed. And then she had the nerve to talk to me like that. I am just so far removed from like all medical things now that I just can't even believe that I didn't know that you could fire a doctor and walk out of a building. But that is everything in me was screaming, get away from this woman who has this needle who's right next to your baby. And so she told me that I need to calm down. So I'm bawling again and I'm like trying not to cry like enough for her to not poke my baby with this huge needle while she's going in my belly. And she said, okay, we're going to try again. And I'm sitting there holding Caleb's hand. I'm laying back and I'm bawling and I'm trying not to move. And she puts the needle in the first time. And now I know that there's going to be another pop and I feel the second pop and I see my baby wiggling and I see this needle next to my baby and she gets the amniotic fluid And then she pulls the needle out and she tells me that she'll be in touch with my results. And she like might've said sorry or something, but it was not loving at all. I did not feel like she was sorry if she said that. I don't remember if she did or not, but I didn't feel any level of remorse from her. She stepped out of the room and the ultrasound tech immediately comforted me. She came so close to me. She was holding my hand. She was wiping my tears. She was bringing me tissues. You could tell that she could tell that I was traumatized, but that doctor could have given two craps about what just happened to me. And that was horrible. So that was that experience. I walk out of that building and immediately I receive a text message from the community called Lasagna Love, which if you've never heard of them, you should look them up. It's amazing. It's a bunch of women who serve you by bringing you lasagna. I had signed up for that a couple of weeks prior when Caleb had COVID because we were kind of on lockdown and it was just a hard time and someone shared that link to Facebook and I figured lasagna sounds good and I was pregnant. So carbs were what I was wanting <laughs> and they had texted me and said, Hey Mandy, I'm so sorry. We didn't get back to you sooner when you signed up for lasagna. We want to bring you an entire Thanksgiving spread for Thanksgiving. Is that something that you would be interested in or do you have your own event going on? And I am 
so emotional as I received this message. And it just felt like God was so near to me to say, like, I see you. I'm going to take care of you. It's going to be okay. And I just told her, thank you so much. That sounds incredible. And so she said, okay, we'll bring it over on Thanksgiving day, which this is 2020. So our family didn't do Thanksgiving this year because the most loving thing you could do in Thanksgiving of 2020 is stay home because you're going to kill everyone in your family if you got together. (laughs) So, um, we went home and the next few days were a blur, um, except for not really because I woke up the next morning in a puddle of liquid and I actually had to go into the ER. I thought that my water had broke, which is something that can happen from getting the amnio. And again, I was like 11 weeks pregnant or something. So this was very early. Um, I actually think I might've been a little more long because I think it was closer to, I don't remember exactly when I had to go in to get the amnio. Well, if it was Thanksgiving, so September, October, November, I was like three months along. Yeah. So around 11 weeks. Um, but I had to go in, I I was supposed to bartend that day, but I woke up in this huge puddle and it was the morning after that amnio happened. And I went into the ER, um, and I was a mess. <laughs> I was just so emotional. All of this is happening. The early bleeding, the inconclusive test twice, the pediatric specialist, the amniocentesis, and now this amniotic fluid that I thought was leaking out of my body. I'm just like, this is horrible. And when you hear my story of my home birth, you'll understand like how much more peaceful it was to not, not participate in any of this. But I get to the ER it was just a long morning. They did an ultrasound. Baby was fine. And she even told me she thought it was a boy because she could see his little penis, which was really great, but hadn't received the results from the amnio yet. So I was like, okay, I'm going to hold out hope that maybe it's a girl because I wanted a girl so bad. And, um, I went back to the room after the ultrasound, called my parents, said they think it's a boy. It looks like he's okay. We're still waiting to see if it was my water that broke. And this guy basically came in and told me that if my water broke, um, well, he wanted to check if my cervix was still closed because if it wasn't, then my baby was not viable for life at this point. So basically I would lose my baby. And that was really rough to hear and hard. Um, And then obviously my least favorite parts of my pregnancy. Well, one of the least favorite things of being within the system is all the cervical checks, especially from random men. So this was, I think the only time that a man checked my cervix while my husband just stood there, which is so uncomfortable. And I hate so much. And I hate that women just consent to this all the time without even thinking about it because it's just normal. And it's something that you should do when you're pregnant. Um, I just can't, I'm sorry. So he checks me. My cervix is thankfully still closed. They don't really know what the liquid was, which is still weird to me. Um, But they say they don't think it's amniotic fluid and everything was fine. So they sent me home, told me to rest. Um, I had a appointment about a week later with my midwife for my monthly checkup. And I had heard back the day before that appointment from the amniocentesis that the baby was a healthy baby boy. And in between that, we had Thanksgiving, which I just kind of, well, you know that Judah's fine because 
you know who Judah is most likely if you're listening to this. Um, but backtrack a little bit before finding out that he's fine. The family who brought us a full Thanksgiving spread on Thanksgiving day, I was so emotional and weepy the entire time waiting to hear back about those results because I'm literally reading all of the different possibilities about if the baby has this, it's probably not going to survive through pregnancy. If the baby has this, it's probably only going to live for this long. If the baby has this, then that means it's not going to be able to do this, this, and this. And if the baby has this, then it actually might be me or the baby like they threatened me with or tried to fear monger me with. And so, um, they brought the food over. I was so thankful. I couldn't stop crying. They didn't know why I was crying. I texted the lady who brought the food after she dropped it off. And I told her we just had an amniocentesis. Um, they think that there might be something genetically wrong with our baby. And she responded telling me that she had a daughter who had, I think, trisomy 18 and did not survive for more than a few days after birth. And she said that that baby changed her and her husband's life. It changed their faith. Um, it was the hardest and sweetest thing they've ever walked through to love her. And she just encouraged me that everything was going to be okay. And I read that text to Caleb and that was the first time that he had cried about the entire experience because it just felt so much more real that these people who had walked through that just fed us a whole meal for Thanksgiving. Like it was just crazy. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, why would God bring me this woman who's walked through that almost to prepare my heart for a loss? Like I just thought for sure now something's going to be wrong with my baby. And before I was kind of going back and forth, maybe it's not. Well, if it's not wrong, then why did it come back inconclusive twice? And I just had all these worries and all of these fears and I'm a first time mom and I'm so excited to be pregnant and I'm showing and everywhere I go, people are, you know, like starting to ask about my belly, but what if this doesn't result in a baby? What if everything I've gone through so far leads to us losing our child? And this was just horrible, like so, so unnecessary, so unneeded. I haven't even had a 20 week ultrasound yet. They haven't found anything that was actually wrong besides my placenta. So anyways, fast forward, I get the call. He's okay. The next day I go in for my OB appointment and she confirms a healthy baby boy. I told her everything that's gone on so far from the early bleeding to the genetic testing coming back inconclusive. She knows all these things, but I'm just telling her like, this is horrible. Like, is it like this every time you're pregnant or am I just unlucky? And she was just saying, you know, for some people that test doesn't work. For some people it comes back immediately and it tells you the gender and it tells you if there's something wrong with your baby. For some people, the blood test, for whatever reason, it just doesn't work for them. And that's what had happened in my case. So if you are a newly pregnant mom and you're thinking about doing any genetic testing, my two number, my number one and number two recommendations are number one, think about if something was wrong with your baby, would you choose abortion? Because many times the reason why they're pushing that test is number one, because they can make more money from more testing. And number two, they want to offer you a way out of dealing with whatever that injury or sickness or illness would be. And if you would not choose that way out for your child, there is no reason to do the testing. 
There isn't. There's no reason. You can find out at the 20 week or you can find out at birth and then you can handle that. Some people want to find out sooner, but really that stress on your pregnancy coming from someone who's gone through it is very, very challenging. And it's actually worse for your baby to go through that stress in utero. There's so many studies done that shows that what you experience in pregnancy, your baby experiences in pregnancy and trauma is in DNA that we pass down to our babies while they're being formed in the womb. I know so much about this through foster care because we learn about people think when babies are taken away from their parents at birth, it's less traumatic than maybe if they were sexually or physically abused when they're older, but our body keeps score of these things and it is literally in our DNA. So the fact that I went through all of this, somehow Judah's still a really easy chill baby despite all of this. Um, but I just want to encourage you to number one, think about would you have an abortion? And if the answer is no, I would highly recommend putting off the genetic testing and either just doing the 20 week ultrasound or even just waiting until the baby's born and then figuring it out. Because even if you find out in the womb, if you're not going to do um, the abortion, then there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You just will have your baby and you will see. And a lot of the times these tests are wrong and they say from the ultrasound at 20 weeks that, oh, it has markers of this, which could be leading to this, which might mean this. And then babies are born completely healthy, whether that resolves on their own at birth or it resolves as they grow. It's incredible to hear the stories of moms who were told your baby's going to have this and then the baby's born and everything is fine. So a lot of that is just <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. And if you do find out obviously horrible news at your 20 week ultrasound or later on, or if you do experience the unthinkable of losing a child in the womb or at birth or even postpartum, obviously there's a different discussion to be had with all of those things, but coming from someone who was put through the ringer and nothing was wrong with my child, I just want you to know that you have a choice to even do the testing in the first place and every person can make that decision. My heart is that people know that they have an actual informed consent where they know what questions to ask and then they're able to walk in freedom from the fear mongering and the anxiety that a lot of these testings can bring. So anyways, um, that was around 12 weeks. And after that, everything was pretty smooth. We went to the 20 week ultrasound. Everything was fine. Obviously already knew he was fine, knew he was a boy. And I was receiving, um, some encouragement around 30 weeks pregnant from a friend who had a, baby with a epidural. And then she also had a baby without the epidural. And she knew that I wanted to have a natural birth with my first child. And she gave me the book, Ina May's Guide to Childbirth. I was 30 weeks pregnant. And this is when my views just completely switched. I read this book and the first half of it, well, the first two thirds of it are basically just birth stories and it's all kinds of birth stories. Most of them are home birth stories, but they also have home birth transfers. They have um, miscarriage stories or stillborn stories or just any kind of story that you can think of with birth. And I loved reading this book. I would read it before bed. I would read it out in the sun in the spring. And then the last part of the book goes over 
um, facts and statistics about intervention that can happen to you when you're pregnant. And this book changed my life, you guys. If you've never read Ina May's Guide to Child book, there's some weird stuff in there. There's like orgasmic birth stories, which is a little hippy-dippy. And there's some new age stuff in there, which is kind of hard to stay away from when you get into like midwifery and more holistic books about birth because a lot of people mistake God for like the universe or they say that you can like summon your angel babies and it's just, it gets kind of weird. Um, but most of it, I was able to kind of like take the meat and spit out the bones and recognize that my body was made to do this and that I could birth my baby without an epidural. Um, so It was actually the week that Judah was born that I started seeking out a home birth midwife. I was listening to so many birth stories, so many podcasts, reading so many books. That book was like the book though. I read that cover to cover probably two or three times. I just could not get enough of it. It was so helpful for me to hear other women's stories and to learn about the statistics and the facts of intervention. And there's a quote in that book that says, the first intervention and the biggest intervention is leaving your house. When you're giving birth, your home is your safe space. And the term nesting actually means to prepare a place to give birth and to raise your child. Like when animals nest, they prepare their birth space and where they're going to be raising their children. And so it's kind of crazy that we nest at our house and then we leave for the hospital. (laughs) And so in learning everything about the medical mindset surrounding birth versus physiological birth, I just knew that I wanted a physiological birth. So it was the week that I was going to give birth to Judah Um, I didn't know I was going to give birth to him that week because he came on 38 and 5, but I started seeking out a home birth midwife and I did not know how this worked, you guys. I called a midwife. I'm like, hey, I'm 38 weeks and three days. I want to have a home birth. And she's like, "Uh, (laughs) you're supposed to call me when you find out that you're pregnant and then you pay me instead of the doctor and I do all of your prenatals and I come for your postpartum and I come to you for birth and I prepare all of your supplies and I just had no idea. So... She ended up telling me that um, she would maybe do a consultation with me. She was asking a ton of questions about my nutrition, which I had never really been asked about when I was going to like the primary doctor throughout my pregnancy. Um, They did not care as much as this woman did about how I took care of myself when I was pregnant, which I found very interesting. And now knowing more about home birth, I understand that like... It's actually more responsible when you take on more responsibility of your prenatal care as having a home birth, then people think like home birth is just like the, the nuance around it is that you're irresponsible and you're taking a risk. And it's actually like, you have to take on more responsibility because you have to do more educating than just walking through the steps of the hospital system and showing up and being like, oh yeah, I don't have a birth plan. Whatever happens, happens. That's actually more risky. And that's <laughs> that's what they want you to do so that they can just guide you along and say, okay, well, I checked you. You're at this centimeter. We'll start you on Pitocin to increase contractions. And then you end up getting an epidural or you want an epidural. And then if it doesn't progress quickly enough, then we're going to have a C-section at the end of it. And that is most often what will happen if you show up without a birth plan. And so that's just the sad reality of the fact that people think it's more risky to have a home birth. So I was really impressed by this midwife's um, questions, but 
what she ended up deciding was she could not commit to doing my home birth because she already had committed to another mom who was due any day. And, um, this was actually like the day before Judah was born. She called me back. We were supposed to have a consultation that day. And she said, I can't commit to it, but I think you need a doula. And she said she would be my doula in the hospital because she said, as a first time mom, if you want to see this come to fruition, you need someone else there fighting for you who knows more than you. Because I had read the birth stories in the books, but I just was not where I am now. And even now, I would not want to put myself in the situation of having to advocate for myself while giving birth because your brain shuts off the thinking part of your brain shuts off when you're giving birth and you go into like the primal state of protection and... um like you want to go into a dark place, you want to be alone, you want it to be quiet, and your body is literally just focusing on giving birth. You cannot answer questions, you cannot advocate, you cannot fight for yourself while you're in that space. And so she was going to be my doula. She ended up not. Um, and she said, call me for your next pregnancy. So that's kind of like everything leading up to my birth with Judah. And I'm at about 40 minutes right now, so I got to I gotta hurry up. <sighs> my birth story. Uh, so I had a beautiful birth with Judah. I didn't recognize it was traumatic until about six months after. Um, because again, I'm a first time mom. So I went home from a friend's house. We did dinner and they prayed for us. They knew that we were going to have a baby soon. I lost my mucus plug around 5 PM the night before. And then I went over to our friend's house for dinner and after we got back home, we went to bed and I woke up feeling a little bit of a trickle down my thigh and I thought maybe I had peed myself. <laughs> so I kept like in and out of sleep kind of like, and I was kind of feeling that whole day before when I lost my mucus plug that things were happening. I just kind of had this like intuitive knowing that I was about to give birth, um, but you know, it, you're a first time mom, people tell you you're going to go to 42 weeks and I was only 38. So that entire week though, I was very, I knew, I knew I was going to have the baby soon. Um, certain people called me crazy, but I'm like, well, I just feel like it's about to happen. And then sure enough, he came at 38 and five. So I woke up to the little trickle. I sat up in my bed and my water broke all over my bed. It was a huge gush, just like in the movies, which find out now that that's like, I found out later that that's very rare. Um, that's often not what happens. And so I was thankful that my water broke um, because I wasn't questioning if I was in labor or not. Like I just knew. And so I called the hospital. I laid back down for about 15 minutes. Well, actually, okay, my water broke. I got out of bed. Caleb told me, no, I think you just peed. We should go back to bed. This is 3.40 a.m. So like he's just tired. And I'm like, no, babe, I really think that was my water. So um, something that they don't tell you, though, is that when your water breaks, it literally continues to leak out of you until your baby comes out, which I just did not know. And so I was still leaking. And thankfully, I had the postpartum diapers already in my closet. So I put on a diaper, I got back in bed on top of the amniotic fluid. I didn't even change my sheets, which is really gross. But um, I got contractions pretty soon after, like 15 minutes after, and they were about 10 minutes apart. 
So I called the hospital. I said, I think my water broke. I'm having contractions. They're pretty consistent. And so they said, okay. And they asked me a ton of questions on the first nurse hotline or whatever. And they're like, okay, I think you should come in. So our house is a disaster. We cleaned up as quick as we could. We packed the rest of our bags and we went into the hospital. And when I got there, they checked me and I was 80% effaced. And I think three, no, four centimeters dilated. I just pulled up my notes. So, um, this was around 6.30 and I labored in bed until I hit around four and a half centimeters dilated. So I had two cervical checks within like the first, I don't know, three hours that I was in the hospital. Uh, again, I just didn't know any better. And now I know that that doesn't mean anything, but that's just kind of where it was at. So I'm sharing that with you just so that you know, um, but your cervix is not a crystal ball. So none of this really matters. Um but I ended up getting pretty into active labor around 9 a.m. Mind you, this was on Mother's Day. It was May 9th of 2021, and um, it was a Sunday, so we were watching church online, and I heard my pastor talking, and all of a sudden, I just got so annoyed, and I'm like, I needed to be quiet, and I want to be alone. So I went and got into the bath, and um, I think I was in the bath for around two and a half hours, and they came into the bathroom, and this is one of the most vivid memories I have of my birth, is this doctor coming in. What the atmosphere was before she came in was the lights were off. Caleb had a worship music like speaker playing. Um, it was like this really sweet song that I love, <laughs> and I was in the bath with, I think, a peanut ball or something, and I was just trying to like relax in between contractions. Um, and he was doing counter pressure on my hips. When the doctor came in, she turned the light on and she stood in the doorway and she just stared at me. And I cannot explain this to you any better like than this statement of, I felt as if that doctor was walking in on me and Caleb being intimate. That is the feeling I had of like, what do you want? Why are you looking at me? Why are you in here? Can I help you? <laughs> That's literally what I felt. And it was like this weird, like, I don't like that you're in here, but I'm in your hospital and I should like allow you to do what you want kind of feeling as like a first time mom. And so, um, she just kind of was, she was hearing me. I was vocalizing a lot, um, like screaming a lot and I was not relaxing because it was very, very painful. And so she checked me at noon and I was, um, five centimeters. So I had barely progressed. I thought I was at transition. All the books said, when you feel like you can't do it anymore, you're about to have your baby. So I thought I was like laboring and this was going very, very quickly. Cause it got very, very intense. Caleb was doing counter pressure, like every two or three minutes, every single contraction on my hips. And sometimes I wanted to be like more away from him, but I would literally just have him grab my shoulders and just squeeze as hard as he could, because just like the feeling of pressure on my body was what I needed. And they checked me around noon and they said I was five centimeters still. And the baby was sunny side up. So he was posterior, which makes apparently it's called back labor. I don't really remember like that feeling of it being in my back, but I remember it being very painful. And prior to my pregnancy, my midwife had told me 
or during my pregnancy, I could, I had asked her cause she had an epidural and she did one without an epidural. And I asked her like, how do you know, like if you should get the epidural? Cause I feel unsure and I know it's not good to go into it unsure because then you're going to end up getting it. And she told me she just doesn't want to see women suffering. And she said, it's okay to feel pain. It's okay to experience intensity or pressure, but if you're suffering, like she said, I, I really don't like to see that. So, um, knowing what I know now, I'm kind of like, "Mm, I don't know if that's the best advice. Like, that's not what I would tell moms, but you know, I was thankful for her encouragement and for her, like, I really respect her. Um, and so I'm just like, okay, I'm suffering. I'm feeling like I'm suffering. So I'm going to get the epidural. So, um, I decided on the epidural and while I was waiting, I was like, is there literally anything you can give me? Because I was in so much pain and they were like, well, we can give you fentanyl. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Put it in my IV. I don't even care. And they had already given me the IV in my hand just in case, which another thing I would recommend if you have to go to the hospital to birth your baby, don't let them put an IV in you just in case. If they need that IV later, they can do it, but like, no, thank you. So, um, they put fentanyl in my IV or whatever, or maybe it was like a, I think it might've been like a gas in like a mask. I don't remember. I just can't believe they give mothers fentanyl when they're in labor. Like this is something people get their children removed for like, and put into foster care, but we're going to give it to a laboring mom. (laughs) And I asked when they were about to give it to me, is this going to affect my baby? They're like, no, no, it doesn't affect your baby at all. It's totally fine. Okay. Sounds good. (sighs) But the epidural was at one o'clock. The anesthesiologist came in. He was older. He was really nice. He was very good. He got it the first time. I was thankful for that. Um, and after I got the epidural, it was like the next contraction, Caleb looked over at me and I was just laying in bed texting. I was no longer needing him. And he, he saw the contractions on the monitor and he goes, are you having a contraction right now? I said, yeah. He's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to get food. Like, (laughs) so he left around one. And by the time he came back, I was ready to push. Like it was crazy. So my body was able to finally fully relax and just do what it was going to do without me being so tense and kind of fighting back instead of surrendering. I did not know how to surrender. I knew I was supposed to, I just didn't know what that looked like. And so, um, I got the epidural and then they checked me again at two 30 and I was at a nine And I was like, so excited. I'm like, oh yes, like my body's doing it. And I was scared of a C-section. I did not want that to happen. And so I was really thankful that things were progressing. And, um, then this part's kind of weird, but this guy came in and he had a paper. He wanted me to do a group B strep swab in order to receive a $150 visa gift card. And if you know anything about physiological birth, you know that the most, off-putting thing while birthing would be to have a man come in while you're in active labor to swab your butthole. And you don't even know who this man is. Like that happened to me, but I had an epidural. And so I was just like, you know, I was in a good mood. My baby was coming soon. And I was like, yes, I want that gift card. So I let this random man swab my butt and I got a $150 gift card. And shortly after that, that's just the weirdest thing. Again, my husband just sat there and watched this all happen. Another man. It's just so strange. I, it's so strange. So I felt pressure 
And um, apparently Judah's heart rate was rotated, so they inserted the internal fetal monitor. I found out over a year after he was born what this actually means. So moms, if you're pregnant and you've never given birth before, if you are okay with them screwing a metal screw into your baby's head in order to keep track of your baby's heart rate, then consent to internal fetal monitoring. If you're not okay with that, do not consent to it because they didn't tell me what this was. They just told me we have to insert a catheter and then we track his heart rate through putting something into your vagina. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally fine. Yep. I thought it was like this little thing that just goes next to my baby's heart maybe or something. No, they literally screw a metal screw into your baby's head and they don't tell you that's what it is. So after your baby comes out, they sometimes unscrew it. I've heard that um, midwives or doctors just pull it out sometimes and people have like lifelong scars on their head from this. I've never seen where this was inserted in Judah's head, but he has a huge, like full thick head of hair. So who knows? But that's what happened with that after I consented, quote unquote, not really because I didn't know what it was. Yes, I'm salty about this and this should be a crime to screw a metal screw into your baby's head. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. I'm sure that they thought that that doesn't affect the baby either, even though that's like a fully developed baby getting something screwed into its head. So shortly after that, I was 10 centimeters, <laughs> started pushing at 2.53 PM. Apparently I have my notes that the doctor went over with me. Well, the nurse went over with me before she left after I gave birth. And, um, the next thing is like probably the second biggest reason why I had a home birth. And it's because my baby's head was halfway out and the doctor told me, and I quote, you know, Mandy, you would probably do better with some more contractions without pushing. And I had already told them I do not want Pitocin. And I was like, okay, so Caleb drops my left leg. He's holding one leg, a nurse is holding the other. The doctor's at the end of the bed. I'm laying on my back. I'm getting coach pushed. Take a deep breath. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Push, 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 push. Like that is how my baby came out. That's that's how I got him out. I have this recorded because I wanted to take a video to show my mom because I didn't want anyone in the room, but I knew that was important to her. And I was really thankful that I recorded it because I got this doctor on video giving me Pitocin without my consent. So Caleb drops my leg after she says this and I am like sitting there like, okay, so you don't want me to push? She's like, oh no, you can push. And I'm like confused. And then I hear her tell the doctor to start pit or to push pit. I don't remember which one. And I knew what she was saying, but because I was so in labor land and like so focused, I didn't feel like I could like say no. Um, and I didn't even know this was traumatic for me until six months later, but I was given Pitocin without my consent when my baby's head was halfway out because I wasn't pushing this baby out fast enough on Mother's Day. I'm guessing a lot of mothers were induced on this day because they wanted to become a mom on Mother's Day, but the hospital was so packed full that the doctor like wasn't ready to come in when they first told me to push and I kind of had to wait a little bit. And then also they ran out of ice packs because there were too many moms. So... Yeah. I think that I was just taking too long. Um, and she was ready to be done with me because I had been pushing from around three to four 30 at that point. Um, but Judah decided to come out 
around 41 minutes after they started Pitocin and my contractions were a little bit more apart at this point. So probably only like five or six contractions after she gave me Pitocin. So if she would have just calmed down a little bit and waited, I hate the term failure to progress. And a lot of people, they see that on their charts for um, C-sections because they want you to have, like, if your water breaks, you have 24 hours. Otherwise, that's an increased risk of infection and we have to do something else, aka another intervention, which often leads to the cesarean. Um, but on my chart, I checked and that was the reason for starting Pitocin was failure to progress. My baby's head was halfway out of my body. I was progressing and my child was right there. And this doctor just decided against my consent to put this in my body. So that was awful, but not actually in the moment. I saw Judah and the reason that he came out was because another doctor in the room said, any one of these pushes could be Judah's birthday. And I don't know what it was, but it was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to have a baby. And I was so excited and happy and I pushed him out and it was incredible. And I got to have a vaginal birth. I got to have skin to skin. I was so thankful. And because of those things, I did not see my birth as traumatic because traumatic for me, what I was picturing was there's this emergency situation, like a true emergency where I have to be separated from my baby. I don't get skin to skin. I don't get to breastfeed. I don't get to have a vaginal birth. And none of that was true for me. So I was like, well, that was pretty good. Like, you know, we're all healthy. That's what they say. As long as a healthy mom, healthy baby, that's all that matters. And so I was literally on top of the world. I was so obsessed with my baby the second that I saw him. And Caleb cut the cord six minutes after he was born, which is annoying and (laughs) kind of wish we would have waited longer on that too. Um, But then the placenta was ripped out of me after pumping more Pitocin into me at 521. And this is just against the physiological birth process. So that's why I'm so upset about it because God created our bodies to birth in such a beautiful, miraculous, instinctual, physiological way. And I get so sad and so upset when I hear moms having that taken away from them and medicalized to the point of the doctor doing things for them. So that's what happened to me with my placenta. I have a picture of her pulling it out of my body. And I know that they gave me more Pitocin after giving me Pitocin while I was birthing, even though Pitocin during active labor is actually going to increase the risk of hemorrhage postpartum wise, and then they need more Pitocin. So they tell you that they need to use Pitocin to decrease the risk of hemorrhage when actually using it in active labor increases your risk of postpartum hemorrhage after you have your baby. Fun fact. So Um, yes, it was a beautiful experience overall. I was very happy and obsessed with him, but looking back, it was just not what I wanted. And I'm not, I'm not upset that I got the epidural because honestly, I was so fear filled that it was more painful too. Cause I knew it was going to be hard, but I was a first time mom. I had never felt this before. He wasn't in the right position. I thought that my body was failing because it wasn't progressing. And then once I got the epidural, he came out. So Had I tried to do this for longer without the epidural and it would have led to a C-section, I think I would have been more upset that I didn't get the epidural. So I'm more thankful that I got the epidural than anything else that didn't really go my way or what I was thinking. And honestly, in the grand scheme of life, this is not the end of the world, but it is really annoying that they didn't ask me consent for things and did things in the medicalized model. Um, I have a couple other notes I wanted to hit on. Um, 
another thing about the hospital that I really did not like is after he came out, they did not want me to hold him when I was resting in the bed. And I didn't know that I was going to be a bed sharing mom. I just kind of went with what felt right to me. And that's really what my first step into following my intuition in motherhood was because I believe that the Holy Spirit gives you mother mother's intuition where you know what is right for your baby. And the more that you follow your intuition, the more that you trust yourself and the more that you're able to take care of your baby without needing an outside source to tell you what to do. But when you don't follow your intuition, it makes you doubt yourself as a mother because you knew you were supposed to do something different. And because of someone else's opinion or worrying about them, you chose not to do that. So that's why it's so important for me that moms start to follow their intuition as a mother. And this is the first time where something felt so against my instincts postpartum, and that was not holding my baby while we were both resting. But they kept telling me, you can't hold your baby while you sleep. It increases the risk of SIDS and something bad could happen. So when the nurse was in and I was tired, she would take my baby and put it in the little plastic tub thing next to the bed. Um, And then she would walk out and I would pick my baby right back up. (laughs) And there were some nurses that were like, more lax on it, but most of them, when they would come in, they would tell me like, Oh, you can't hold your baby. Oh, it was like a script. Like they were all told like, this is what you tell a mom. And it's like, okay, well, if I was a nurse after being a mom, I would tell that mom, hold your baby as much as you can because your baby was just in your body for 10 months and you formed that baby and the baby only knows you. And it just came out. And also Um, everyone in other countries holds their babies while they sleep because both the mom and the baby, uh, sleep better that way and actually decreases the risk of SIDS to breastfeed while you're sleeping because the baby wakes up and feeds instead of being in such a deep sleep that it doesn't wake up. And so I'm going to have a whole nother episode on bed sharing, but (laughs) that was another thing I just didn't love about the hospital. And then also when I left, I just felt so anxious and I was so emotional And I think it's really special about home birth is you don't have to leave your house soon because you just had a baby and you get to just stay and you get to be and you don't have to leave and you don't have to go in public and you don't have to drive. And all of those things were really overwhelming for me when we were leaving the hospital. But a few benefits that I just wanted to mention with hospital birth that I did really like is when we gave birth, it was May of 2021. So things were starting to open back up, but they still had visitor limits at the hospital. And so we just didn't have any visitors when we were there. And that was three days of us just getting to enjoy Judah, which I really loved. I had high anxiety about sharing him. Um, The nurses were really nice, but also... I hate fundal massages and the fact that they call it a massage should be (laughs) criminal because that's not what it is. It actually really hurts. And they come in so often just to like smush your belly down and type on the computer next to you. And it just really is not like ideal postpartum. Um, I didn't have any fundal massages with Gloria And I love that. (laughs) She had one time where she kind of felt around in my uterus, like pushed on my belly a little bit, but it was not a fundal massage. She was just making sure that everything was fine. And she told me I'm only going to touch you one time. And she made sure I was comfortable with that. And it was right before she left our house, um, when I had the baby. So I'll share more about that. But, um, Food was amazing. It was free and I ate a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of food and I just ordered it and it was delivered to me and that doesn't happen when you have home birth. So that was great. Um, and it was free with insurance. So those are the benefits of hospital birth. <laughs> those few things. Everything that I've mentioned in this podcast leading up to this is kind of like 
the reasons why I think you should have a home birth because this is what happened to me when I was pregnant. And I just want to say, obviously, I'm not anti-hospital. I think that hospitals are very important to have if there is a true emergency. But I think that a lot of the emergencies that are caused that or that happen in birth scenarios are actually caused by the interventions that the hospital gives. So if you allow a birthing woman to experience birth in the natural state and if she's educated enough not to be so filled with fear, it's okay to feel fear even if you're walking into a home birth. Like I wasn't fear-free for either of my births when they were happening, but I was so educated with my second that I was excited to experience all of the stages of labor and every single thing that I had learned leading up to that. And I think especially as first-time moms who are just going to the hospital and kind of allowing whatever to happen to happen, the fear is there because you're not educated and you have no idea what's happening to you. And then you start to feel contractions and it feels scary because you don't know how much worse it's going to get. And when the doctors are telling you, okay, you're not progressing or you're not doing what I want you to do, or you're not doing what you're supposed to do, or even if they're not saying that, there's kind of a culture of like, we know what's best and you just need to submit to that because we're the experts. When really... There's no one who could be more of an expert in birth than the mother who's actually giving birth. And that is a complete mic drop. Like I could just close this by saying that. But at the same time, I'm so thankful for modern medicine when we need it. I don't think it should be the place where most women go considering most women have low risk pregnancies and they can birth their baby at home. Even if there's a cord around the neck, even if it's breech, even if it's twins, there's not a certain scenario where just because you have that, you can't have a home birth. And it's just so not known about And there's so many years and um, conditioning to believe that the doctors really do know what's best when actually if you leave a woman alone and just allow her body to do what it was designed to do, that's actually way less risky. When we start messing with women when they're in labor, that is where the risk comes in and that's where things get not good, (laughs) including induction. Something I forgot to share Um, I was thinking about getting induced with Judah and I had shared with a friend that I was thinking about that and she had told me that she went in for her, I don't know what week appointment it was, one of the last appointments of her pregnancy and they did a membrane sweep and a cervical check and they accidentally broke her water and um, she ended up having Pitocin um, because her labor never started and the Pitocin contractions were so intense that she ended up getting the epidural and then she wasn't able to experience just the way that her body was designed to go into labor on its own and that was something that she really wished she could have experienced and so she told me do not get induced if you have a say in it. Do not get an elective induction and so Um, fast forward to when I found out that this was traumatic, it was because, um, another person who was really close to me was about to have a baby in October and I was kind of trying to guide her. Um, she was a family member, uh, I was kind of trying to guide her through not getting induced because I just knew that induction is not 
the best way to start labor if you can avoid it because your body is not ready. And when your body and your baby are both ready, your baby gives off a hormone to the placenta, which goes to your brain to tell your body to start labor. And it's fascinating and it's physiological. You don't have to think about it. Your body just does it. But when we put a woman's body through induction, when the baby is not ready and the woman is not ready, you are asking for a disaster because that is not how the that's not how God designed our bodies to birth. And so I was trying to talk to this person and explain to her induction. I was sending her screenshots of books. I was telling her stories. I was sending her birth stories. And I was trying to basically tell her, even though your doctor suggests something, you have a say in it. And that's when it started to hit me that that say was taken away from me in my birth when I was given Pitocin without my consent. And I actually emailed the hospital And I asked if I could come in and if I could talk to someone about it because a few months postpartum, I went to a wedding and I saw a doctor or a nurse who was working um, at the hospital on the day of my birth. And she recognized me, asked how it went. And I was like, it's, it was good. Got to have a vaginal birth. I got to breastfeed. I got skin to skin. I'm really thankful. Um, but they did give me Pitocin, like without my consent. And I was kind of like questioning if it was wrong. And she was very affirming to me that like that should not have happened. And she, I told her, I'm like, should I like tell someone? And she encouraged me to do that. This was in July. I didn't end up going into the hospital until October. And so I made an appointment um, in July when that nurse told me that she gave me her head nurse's contact information. And I had just kind of been holding on to it because I'm like, no, it's not that big of a deal. My birth was fine. (coughs) Sorry, Judah's asleep on my lap and he's coughing. Um, So I ended up going back into the hospital with Caleb and Judah. And I, at this point, I knew more about my mother's intuition and I knew how to follow my gut because I had been practicing. Um... And it's really fun to just like do what you know you're supposed to do for your kid versus feeling inadequate and like you need another outsider to tell you what's permissible in your parenting journey. But I went into the hospital and I just told her the story. I showed her the video. I explained the whole situation. And she had already kind of gotten the story from me via email, but I had kind of explained more and shown her the video in person. She told me the doctor does not remember me. Well, okay. (laughs) I'm sorry, but if you're allowed to be at someone's birth at such a sacred time in their life to see their child being born, I think you should remember who the people are. I hate that we have such a medicalized culture where we are just a number, we are just a clog in the system as mothers and as women where we just have these people in our birth spaces who don't believe that we can do it without medication. (laughs) She told me that most doctors and nurses, she said it's about 50-50. 50% of the doctors and nurses believe you can do it without an epidural and 50% can't. And I think that that's not true. I think it's actually a higher number of doctors and nurses don't think you can do it because they have less experience seeing a natural physiological birth versus a medical medicalized, medicated birth. Um, but the fact that we're allowing these people into our birth spaces who, number one, don't support us, don't support our birth plans, don't think we can do it, but then also don't even remember us when we come in six months postpartum to talk about how they put medicine in our IV without asking us. Like that was very funny and offensive and ironic to me. 
Um, but she also just said, like, I'm going to address this by being, like, more broad and I'm going to tell everyone, you know, we really need to take women's birth plans into account. I don't believe that anything was actually done. I think that doctors will do what doctors do. And if it's in the system, even if there's good doctors or good nurses, like the doctor who recommended the pit be put in my IV said it to the kindest, most amazing nurse that I've ever worked with. Her name was Katie. She was incredible, but she was just being obedient to the doctor. Like she wasn't trying to be mean to me or go against my wishes, but the doctor told her to do it. So she had to do it kind of in the same way of like, there are teachers that are amazing in government schools, but ultimately they're working for a system who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God and doesn't believe that God should be in our education systems. So it's like, even if there's a good teacher or a group of good teachers, or if there's a good nurse or a group of good nurses, they're working for a system that is failing women and with teachers they're working for a system that is like government funded who doesn't believe in the sovereignty and the importance of god <laughs> so these systems it's just when you see it play out in your own life it really makes you be like hyper aware and hyper vigilant to protect yourself and your children, which is kind of where I went to after this whole pregnancy experience and why moving forward after that appointment, when I went back into that doctor's office um, or went back into the hospital, I knew I wasn't going to give birth in a hospital again, Lord willing. And there were a couple of questions I had for her. I said, if I ever do end up back here and for whatever reason, if I have another baby in this hospital, is there something that I can do where doctors and nurses will not fear monger me about sleeping with my child because we bed share and we breastfeed and it's amazing and I'm not going to not do that with my next baby. Like I'm going to sleep in the bed with my baby if I give birth here. And she goes, yeah, there's basically a form that you can sign where you're kind of just stating if anything bad happens to your baby that we're not liable. And so the other question I had for her was vaccinations because we had a couple doctors fire us as patients when we decided not to follow the CDC schedule for Judah. And those doctors were in the same exact hospital as the one that I gave birth in. So I was asking... Um, because with Judah at birth, we did some vaccines, but then we like were delaying and we, then we stopped. And so um, due to not following their recommendations, they told us they can't see us as a client anymore, which I thought was very interesting. And um, she basically said for the vaccines, same thing. You just tell us that you don't want that and you'll sign the form or whatever, and then you'll be good. And basically it's... and. It's, it's to make sure that they're not liable. But when I told my midwife about my birth, she said, you know what, Mandy, that's horrible. <laughs> but she said, you have no idea the amount of stories that I hear from women. And she said, like, so, so bad. Like, episiotomies that are not consensual and that they didn't even know the doctor did. And just these horrible things, vacuums, forceps, um, obviously C-sections and um, saying that they're going to support the mom in a VBAC and then rushing her back into emergency surgery without her consenting and circumcising children without the parents' consent and vaccinating children without the parents' consent. And the most messed up part to me is that when you walk into a hospital, they have you sign a form when you first get there to have a baby that basically says that if anything bad happens, they're... Um, 
if it was what the doctor thought was right, then basically you can't sue them. It's like if they are doing what they think they should do, then you can't do anything about it. And so I asked my midwife, do you think it's worth it if I try and take this to court and sue the doctor? Because I have this on video. Like there are moms where it's their word versus the doctor. The doctor doesn't remember them and they're never going to win because it's this huge system versus them. But I had a video and I had this like proof, evidence of this that was not... Right. And she said, you know, like you sign that paper when you walk in, there's nothing you can do. And she knows that because of other moms that she's worked with. So my heart behind sharing all of this today is not to bash anyone, not to gossip, not to talk illy about hospital birth or whatever. It's just to share my entire experience of my pregnancy with Judah, to share my birth story and to share what I've learned so far in my mothering, which is to follow your intuition and to know that you are the main authority over your child and that God gave you your baby, which means he will give you the wisdom in order to take care of your baby. And yes, use the hospital if it's an emergency, but in most women's pregnancies, they are low risk and it is less risky to stay home and to birth your baby in the way that God designed it to happen, um, which is to have a less fear-based prenatal experience and to have a support team who actually believes that you can do this in the way that your body was designed and then to experience birth the way that God created our bodies to do that, which is allowing the mother and the baby to do what they were made to do and to work together to get that baby out in so many different variations of normal and to trust that the baby and the mom know what they're doing And the most amazing part is that with my midwife and with most home birth midwives, they know what to do in order to avoid transferring during an emergency, and they actually transfer before it becomes an emergency. And so I just can't wait to interview my midwife so that you guys can hear more of her story and her testimony of how the Lord is using her to serve women and how to assist in physiological natural childbirth at home. It's incredible. And I just love her so much. So that is Judah's birth story with some extra um, spiciness for you. Uh, I just told Caleb, I'm like, there's going to be people that don't like me and that's totally fine. But there's also going to be moms who are excuse me, who are pregnant and who need my story and who need my encouragement and who need my testimony so that they can avoid the inconclusive testing twice and the amniocentesis and the amniotic fluid leading to an ER visit and all of this craziness that could have been avoided had I just trusted my body and said no to the stupid tests. So um, also... Just know if you're pregnant right now that your body was created to do this. And if you've been pregnant and something's gone wrong and you've lost a baby, please hear my heart that I'm not saying that your body wasn't designed for this and there's something wrong with you or that you shouldn't have done the testing. Everyone's pregnancy is different. Everyone's situation is different. There's so many moms who have either lost a baby in utero or had a miscarriage or a stillborn or just so many different experiences. And my heart is so tender to you because everyone's experience is different. And I don't want anything that I've said to make you feel inadequate or to make you feel like your body wasn't made to grow a baby because my next testimony that I'm sharing is my miscarriage. And so I totally understand feeling that your body failed you and that you did something wrong and the woulda, coulda, shouldas and um, 
I know that a miscarriage is not the same thing as a stillbirth or as losing a baby postpartum um, at any stage postpartum, whether that's two days, two years, 20 years. Losing a child is so hard and every experience in that in and of itself is different. But I do want you to hear that even if you've walked through that, that there can be redemption because my testimony after that is my beautiful home birth. The first baby I had no bleeding with, the first baby I was able to allow my body to just experience pregnancy in a stress-free way and birth my baby in the comfort of my own home in the way that God designed it to be. So hear my heart, hear the way that God is going to encourage you specifically and no matter what your motherhood has looked like up to this point. And I also touched on abortion in this podcast and I want you to know that If you've had an abortion, there is healing in Jesus. And I am very clear on the fact that I am pro-life and I believe that life starts at conception and it is not our choice to decide when we take that away from another human being because it is not a woman's body. But I'm also very, very passionate about the fact that Jesus can redeem any broken situation and there can be forgiveness even for you if you're a mother who's had an abortion. And the only true healing that you're going to experience is through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the redemption and the healing that he offers. And so I want to say that if you're someone who has decided either at will or with coercion to have an abortion, or if you're a man listening to this and you've either had a woman abort your baby at your will or with coercion of her, um, that that is a serious, serious thing and that it leads to a lot of mental health issues as I'm sure you've walked through if you've done this or if you've experienced this on a personal level, but that the healing that you're looking for is only going to be found in Jesus and that he can and will and does forgive you if you repent for these things and if you turn to him because that is the only thing that's going to allow you to move on from that and i'm going to be doing a whole another podcast like i said about abortion but i wanted to mention that since i talked about it earlier that i do not judge people who have had abortions i know that every single situation and scenario is different and some people don't have the support or the financial means but i still don't believe that that's a reason to kill a baby and everyone always brings up rape and incest and i'll quickly touch on this that if someone was created by rape they should not have a consequence for their mother or their father's sin. If a man rapes a woman, gets her pregnant, and leaves that mom, it's only going to add more trauma for her to end that baby's life. It's not going to save her situation. It's not going to take back the rape. It's going to add more trauma, more heartache, more mental illness, more pain, more physical injury, and a way higher risk of suicide. And so that's kind of a little bit more about that. But I just wanted to say that if you are someone who has done that, that I want you to know that there's freedom for you too. And I would love for you to message me and I can share more of the gospel with you if you've never heard it or if you need me to repeat it. Um, But just know that that does not separate you from the love of God. And there's nothing that you can do that will. Um, But I did talk about that in that episode. So I wanted to mention that briefly. But thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast and you feel like there's a friend who needs to hear it, if you know a pregnant mama, if you know someone who's thinking about having a baby, if you know someone who might be touched by something that I shared or someone who's coming on your heart, I want you to be obedient and to share this episode with them. And thank 
thank you so much for listening. I will drop part two of this podcast series of my birth stories soon, and it will be about our miscarriage that we experienced. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.